Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to Research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show Mm -hmm. so that you can ask questions or make a comment. And then following the show, you can continue this discussion on Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook pages. In fact, please like both pages. Now, tonight's show is about the South Carolina stories, the truth about the Loman family lynchings in Aiken, South Carolina. I have three guests to speak to you tonight, and they will share with us some genealogy stories. My first guest is Renard East, and he is a hip-hop artist, songwriter from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And one of his new passions is genealogy because he knew nothing about his family or ancestors when growing up. The next guest is Patricia Lohman Pryor. And she has always wondered about the truth concerning her grandmother, Bertha Lohman, and will share her research and discovery behind this story, as well as more information about her family. And then we have historian Elizabeth Robeson. She is a leading researcher on the Lohman family lynchings, and she will provide us with the political and social order through which African-Americans had to navigate a hostile and dangerous existence in the South. Elizabeth Robeson holds the Master's of Philosophy in American History from Columbia University, where she was a fellowship doctoral candidate studying under Professor Barbara J. Fields. The Lowman family lynchings is the subject of her dissertation and a book manuscript and process and progress. Now, I want to just bring to your attention that this show will bring together several concepts shared on other shows that I've had. 
Who's in the House with Char McCargo Barr, Cluster Research with Deborah Abbott, Records of Incarceration with Sharon Batiste Gilliam, Records of the Civil Rights Movement with Antoinette Harrell, and So What with Shelley Murphy. And so I hope that as our guests talk, you will hear some of these concepts. So let me give a warm welcome to Renard East, Patricia Lohman Pryor, and Elizabeth Robeson to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, everyone. Thank Hello. you for having us. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy that all of you have been able to come on tonight. Well, Renard, we're going to start with you because okay. I know that you have been looking at your family history and trying to make sense out of it. So give us just a brief idea of when did you start your family research? Okay. Well, growing up in Philadelphia, um, I didn't know much of my east side, for which I'm an east, but I didn't know many of my family members growing up. And when I was 12 years old, I went to a family reunion. And that was really the only time that I had saw east like myself. And, you know, uh, my family connected on the east side. It wasn't until I was an adult with children, and I would always drive past the house where I went to the family reunion at. So I guess after my wife heard me say one too many times that, hey, I have some family that live over there, <laughs> she suggested that I stop over there and, you know, and just see if I could find a house and connect with, you know, family members. So there was a lady water in our grass, and I didn't know um, if it was the correct house. And I said, excuse me, I came to the family reunion when I was about 12 here. And, um, and she said, what's your name? And I said, Renard East. And she said, what's your dad's name? And I said, Jimmy. And she said, little Jimmy, that's my cousin. So it was my cousin I was speaking to that I didn't even know at the time. So she took me in the house and, you know, and to start explaining our family and showed me a bunch of pictures on the wall of our family members. And at the top of the wall was a really old picture. And I thought, you know, I'm African-American, so I thought it was a Caucasian in the picture. And she said, that's our great-great-grandfather, Isaac East. And, um... That really kind of sparked it from there, like, you know, because I wanted to find out where he came from, where we came from, you know, because up until that point, I just knew we were from Philadelphia. I didn't know we had migrated from down south up to Philadelphia. So that really sparked Okay. Me. Okay. And I just want everyone to just take a look at the pictures because you will see a picture of Isaac East. Now, we're going to come back to you because I want to just hear from Patricia for a moment, Patricia Lohman Pryor. Oh. And so Patricia, hi. Hi, how are you? Okay. okay, well, Patricia, tell us when did you begin? And really the same question, kind of give us an idea of when you started because I, I'm hearing from uh, Renard that he found out some information at a family reunion about his family, about the East. Um, well, I met him about two years ago at a Christmas gathering, and um, I imparted on him some information about the Lohman family. But my genealogy search started with my father, Henry Lohman, who always talked about wanting to know what happened to his family. <clears throat> All of his life, he had flashbacks starting at the early age of five. Um, coffins were lined up on the church ground. And my dad was too small to look into the coffin, so they lifted him up, taking him around. 
looking into these coffins. And he remembers the adults talking about the church was too small to hold all the coffins. That's why they were outside. In uh, 1926, um, my father and his brother Thomas were brought to Philadelphia by Sam Lohman's daughter, Annie Bess, who lived with um, his aunt and uncle, Janie Lohman and Dozier. They never talked about what happened to my dad's family, even though he insisted on wanting to know. Now, uh, they probably want him to have a normal life. That's why they didn't even talk about it. Uh, Henry and Thomas both called Dozier and Janie mom and dad. I called them Nana and Dozier. Um, The Thomas children, uh, Thomas and Henry were both children of Bertha, one of the three Lomans that were lynched. Now, just before my dad passed away, he asked me to look for a book that might help him lead to finding out what happened to his family. Now, the book was titled Rope and Faggot. Now, my sister Michelle found the book on Amazon.com. Unfortunately, uh, my father passed away before I could give him any information of the contents that I found in this book. Okay, and, uh, this I want Patricia... Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Okay. We're going to come back to you in a second, but I just okay. want everyone to know that you mentioned Sam Lohman and yes. Sam Lohman is in the picture with Isaac East. That's scrolling across the screen. So I hope that everyone will take a look at both pictures so that they could know who you're talking about. So we're okay. going to just stop for a second and then come back to you and hear from Elizabeth. So Elizabeth, now I know yeah. that you you have um, you have been looking into the Loman family history. And so mm-hmm. just briefly tell us what kind of interests you in this this family. And when we get to the point where you can tell us more, we want to know what you found and how you found it. Okay. Okay. I came to the Loman uh, incident through the correspondence of a South Carolina writer named Julia Peterkin, who was a planter's wife in Calhoun County and the first Southerner to win a Pulitzer Prize in 1928. And because she only wrote about the black, uh, laborers on her husband's plantation, fictionalized, uh, she was really acclaimed in the 20s uh, by all the Harlem uh, Renaissance literati. So she had a relationship with Walter White, with whom she exchanged uh, correspondence about the, about the Loman lynching. And it was the first time that I had seen any mention of a triple lynching that included a woman. And so that's what piqued my interest. And how long ago was that, Elizabeth? That was 2002. In 2002. Okay. So, mm-hmm. okay. So for a minute, we're going to go back to Renard and we're going to find out else Renard discovered about his East family. So Renard, tell yeah. us about your, your research and where did you look? Okay, so I joined Ancestry.com, you know, once I found out um, where we came from in South Carolina and, um, you know, and a lot of names. Um, So I got on there and I started looking through census records and um, land records and stuff like that. And I found Isaac East um, located initially in Augusta, Georgia, 
1880, him and his wife and two children. And then I picked back up with him in 1900, living in Edgeville, South Carolina. And he lived there in 1910, 1920. But by 1930, he lived in Philadelphia. So when I found those records, that's the first time that I saw the Loman name because Isaac and a few of his children also lived in the household with the Lomans. So I think it was Doja Loman, his wife, two children, and then it was Isaac East, William East, um, Ori, um, I think another daughter whose last name was Jackson, and they all lived in the same household in 1930 and in 1940. Right, and if you all may recall who's in the house, one of the things that he discovered was that Isaac East was not living alone and that he was in the house with other people. And were they all from South Carolina or were some of them already from Philadelphia? Do you, do you know, or could you tell? Yeah, they all, they all were from South Carolina. And I think uh, a young, one of the youngest Romans was born in Philadelphia. He was about four at the time, um, at the but time. everyone else was from South Carolina. Right, now you just mentioned uh, Isaac East owned land. And um, he, well, at least he paid taxes on land as far back as 1874, um, which would have made him about uh, 18 years old at the time, um, about nine years after, um, you know, slavery had ended. Wow. Okay. And when you took a look at not only who was in the house, uh, did you take a look at uh, what was going on in the neighborhood in um, Philadelphia? Uh, yeah, in Philadelphia, I've seen that the majority of the family in the household worked at in a scrap in a scrap iron yard, um, and then I found like uh, World War II um, um, registrations and stuff like that. So I saw that the majority of the East had moved up from South Carolina, were working in you know I think Isaac was retired, but everyone else um, worked in like in a scrap iron. Okay, and just to, just to take it back for a second, where was Isaac in 1920? In 1920, he was in Edgefield, South Carolina. Him and, the, and the, just about all the East. All of the East were in South Carolina in 1920, but by yeah. 1930, you're seeing the that the them, East, yeah. the majority yeah. of them had already moved. Okay, yeah. and so, okay, so there was a question coming out. Uh, they were what? And you said scrap iron. Okay, but we're going to, so, uh, I, you know, I just want to say to you, uh, I did take a look at the neighborhood also and noticed a very interesting pattern in the neighborhood. And I went several, several houses over and I saw a large number of people from South Carolina living in that particular community. And so some of you may have read the warmth of the other sons, the epic story of America's great migration by Isabel Wilkerson. You will know that there was a great migration taking place. And so this is not unusual to start seeing this movement from the South to other parts of other urban areas throughout the United States. And so your family, it looks like they really kind of fit that pattern of that movement. Yes. So let's talk to Patricia for a while. Patricia? Yeah. Okay, Patricia, tell us about 
the the Loman family and what you know about them. Uh, and and let's see if what you know about them is consistent with what um, we just heard from Renard. And can you add to this? Uh, yes, I can tell you that uh, jo Dozier Loman, he was uh, drafted in the service and um, he was in the United States Army in the Labor Battalion. Um, he had a brother, Lester, who lived in Philadelphia also, who had served over in France uh, in World War One. And um, Dozier worked as um, like a crane operator for the uh, Washington Iron Corporation. Uh, he and Janie owned a large brownstone home at uh, 1623 North 12th Street, which he freely shared on a continuous basis with the East family members that were migrating to the North. Uh, he gave them shelter, a place to live, until they were able to get out on their own. And then he would send for another family member from the East side, and then that's how they migrated into Philadelphia. Um, Dozier, he um, had a home that was open to many happy and grateful people, um, especially on Sundays. After church, everybody would congregate to his house watching the Phillies baseball game. And um, there was another East member that lived in the household. Her name was Cora East Smith. That was Janie's sister. She used to do all of the cooking. And um, that's how the um, East family just congregated around everybody and Janie and Dozier. Um, okay. Go ahead. I was just getting ready to say, uh, Janie had worked as a math teacher when she lived in Edgefield, South Carolina. But when she came to Philadelphia, she worked for the uh, Bayock Cigar Company, which was at 9th and Columbia Avenue, and later became the housewife to Dozier Lohman. Yes, and I think as I looked at the census, I could actually see, Jan was Janie's name kind of pulled out in the 1940 census, and it said that she worked in a tobacco factory? That's what that's what Bayok was. It was a cigar factory. A cigar factory. Okay. And mm -hmm. so, the, what what about the other men? Now, uh, Renard said something about scrap iron. What did you find out as far as the um, the industry that they worked in? Well, I didn't uh, know too much about what the East family did as far as their work. I just knew that they were people that migrated. A lot of them lived in that home with Janie and Dozier, but I didn't know exactly what kind of work they did. Right. So I already have a question. So there was migration, and they did ne not necessarily flee from South Carolina, but they left for, now this is just a comment, work opportunities. Uh, probably some of them came for work opportunities and uh, not necessarily uh, what happened to the Lomans. I mean, um, that was another side of the family. That's right. So the East family, you're saying they, they that probably was not the reason, but they were in the household together. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So there was a, re, a, a family relationship with them being in the household together. And then they knew each other. Yes, they did. Yes. Matter of fact, I grew up with a lot of the um, East children and I'm still friends with them. Okay, so are you all cousins or good we're friends? Not, no, we're not really related because uh, Janie and Dozier 
were not the uh, mother and father of my uh, father, Henry, and his brother, Thomas. Uh, they were offspring of Bertha, the uh, woman that was lynched. And when she was lynched, they were sent to live with their Uncle Dozier. Okay, okay. And just help people understand again, who is your father? His name was Henry Lohman. And, and Henry Lohman's mother is Bertha. Is Bertha, that's correct. Is Bertha, okay. And is there anything else you want to tell us about the Lohman family, tell us about what their life was like in in South Carolina. Um, actually, I can tell you um, that on April 25th, um, Sheriff Howard and his three deputies converged on the Lohman property to arrest uh, Sam without a warrant, claiming that he was selling whiskey. Uh, Sam was not at home at the time. Uh, he had taken his two grandsons, Thomas and Henry, with him to the grist mill to have some corn ground. And while he was away, his wife Annie was making soap in the yard, and her daughter was cleaning up outside. And um, there were some white men that were approaching the house, and they ran toward the house with their pistols drawn. Now, the sheriff hit Bertha in the mouth, and her mother tried to come to her rescue. And before she could move, she had picked up an axe, and um, one of the deputies, I think his name was Nolly Robinson, had um, shot her in the eye. She died immediately. Uh, next, Bertha was shot twice, um, once through the left breast above her heart and then through the abdomen. She was pregnant and she lost the baby. Um, she had a cousin, Clarence, and he was shot and seriously injured. And then Damon was shot, but not as serious as Bertha and Clarence. Um, then Chef Howard was shot in the back, and he died in the backyard. And it had been speculated that uh, his deputy shot him and tried to lay the blame on the Loman family. Now, while Sam was still at the grist mill, all this had taken place. Bertha was taken to the hospital. Clarence and Damon were arrested and placed in the Aiken jail a few days later. Uh, then Bertha, who was not even expected to live, was taken from, from uh, the hospital to jail a few days later. And along with Clarence and Damon, they had to appear in a local Aiken court uh, for a little trial. However, an appeal was made somewhere along the line uh, that the state Supreme Court uh, had overturned the local court. So the uh, Lomans, they remained in jail for about 17 months waiting for the Supreme Court trial to take place. Um, uh, so when Sam returned home, he was arrested and sentenced to two years in um jail, and uh, he was on a train gang. Um, now, throughout the town, the talk was that they were going to lynch the Loman children. And uh, that's what I know about what was happening. In right. Well, this is such a, a very, very painful story to hear you, you tell it to us. And, you know, the thoughts that's going on in my mind right now is that I, I want to know about the family before the tragedy. Tell us what you uh, were able to find out about your family. This is very, very sad to hear yeah, uh, you recount this. But I know before, and I would suspect that before any of this happened, the family had to have something that was very good about them. And oh, so yeah. tell us about your family. 
Well, I know they were Christian people, and uh, they were very hard workers. And uh, Sam, actually, he was a very uh, industrious individual. And um, I learned through some of the writings from um, Elizabeth that um, he had actually owned a lot of land and that um, he was a self-sufficient farmer. And um, they they tried to live well, but uh, they were living in a time where a lot of whites were uh, kind of jealous and I know that uh, the Sheriff Howard, he probably was very jealous seeing um, a prosperous farmer during a time when the whites were really suffering during Depression. Yes, yes, indeed. And well, Howard what... being a... Go ahead. Oh, I want you to go ahead. Okay, so Sheriff Howard, uh, being head of the Klan, uh, he had a lot of clout there. And um, he just didn't appreciate a uh, prosperous farmer during that particular time because the white farmer right. started. Certainly. And there's a comment coming out of the chat that says that this was so much more to the, there was so much more to your family than this horrific tragedy. And sure. so we're really glad to, to hear you share that with us. Uh, to know that your family uh, was a very self-sufficient family and that yeah. a prosperous family and something happened. So I'm going to take this to Elizabeth so that Elizabeth, and it, before I even do that, we're going to take a quick break and come back because Elizabeth, I want you to help us understand just the a uh, social and political climate in South Carolina. Give us some historical context so we could understand what happened to this family, okay? So we're going to take a quick break. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. And all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded through Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. Well, I'm going to bring Elizabeth Robeson back on because she is by far one of the leading researchers that has more information 
tell us about the tragedy as well as to help us understand the social and political context of what was going on in South Carolina. And then tell us about some of the sources she used to make sense out of this tragedy. Elizabeth? Yes, I'm gonna try to summarize this, but I'm gonna depend on you, Bernice, to keep me on track because this is a very big open-ended question. Essentially, I think that it's important for listeners to understand that South Carolina in 1920 still bore the stigma of being the state that led the United States into the Civil War. It was a singular state in that it was settled as early in 1670 by Barbadian planters who were running out of land uh, on that island in the Caribbean. So they came to South Carolina with their, quote, seasoned slaves, meaning that they were not necessarily African, and immediately set about um, harvesting crops of rice and indigo. Uh, because of the climate and the soil of South Carolina, it was the only state uh, in the South that was able to develop cotton culture from coast to coast. So fairly early, uh, certainly by 1820, you have uh, established planter families that are reproducing and not able to divide plantations among the next generation. So the convergence of uh, the United States moving uh, Native Americans out of the territories of western Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi was uh, part and parcel of this need for southern planters to move west. And what a lot of people don't understand is that one of the reasons that the Deep South, excluding uh, French Louisiana, uh, shares such a, uh, a common culture is that much of it was peopled by South Carolinians moving west. And South Carolina was a very developed uh, and ideologically wedded culture to slavery. It produced the intellectual, the political, and the economic class that carried a lot of clout in uh, the U.S. Congress. Uh, Southerners were, you know, John C. Calhoun, uh, developed the whole doctrine of uh, states' rights and secession. And South Carolina tried to secede in the 1830s. And Andrew Jackson had to send federal troops down there to quell that. So South Carolina had a reputation among the rest of America as this hot-headed, uh, very arrogant uh, state. So after, uh, and of course, the Civil War began in South Carolina with its firing on Fort Sumter, which is just outside of, you know, just off of Charleston, uh, South Carolina, on uh, a fort that was occupied by U.S. troops. So that was the beginning of the Civil War. After the war and for many decades uh, going forward, People in the United States had the clear association of South Carolina with the, being the state that was recalcitrant, unapologetic, 
had brought about this calamity that killed hundreds of thousands of people and cost the U.S. Treasury millions and millions of dollars. So it's very important to understand that South Carolina was looked on in the 20s much as we look on Mississippi and Alabama today for the way that they uh, uh, resisted desegregation uh, in the in the 60s. You know, all that footage of German shepherd dogs and fire hoses and, and the Philadelphia, Mississippi uh, killings. South Carolina had that kind of stigma. It was not a state that people especially cared for. General Sherman went through South Carolina and burned so many courthouses that it's made the historian's job very difficult to reconstruct a lot of what existed prior. And that impacts the Loman story in that Lexington district, which was the area that uh, the Loman plantations uh, were in, all of that documentation was destroyed, which could give us information, really genealogical information, about the Loman lineage back into slavery. So all that said, uh, in South Carolina, as did other southern states, uh, never acquiesced to the federal government during Reconstruction. Uh, the entire time that Reconstruction was um, the law of the land, South Carolinians were running an insurgency against the federal government as it was, uh, you know, represented on the ground in the offices of the Freedmen's Bureau and U.S. troops. It's important also to understand that the U.S. government never fully uh, supplied the manpower and protection that was required in large expanses of rural countryside. So uh, in 1876, the, the insurgents were successful in overthrowing the legitimate uh, government elected in South Carolina and establishing uh, a former Confederate general as the governor, Wade Hampton. And the pitched battles that really helped turn the tide in South Carolina uh, took place in what became Aiken County. So Aiken County, even to this day, uh, memorializes the valor, quote unquote, of those men. Many of them were Confederate veterans, but many of them were also the sons of those veterans who had been too young to serve in the war, who assassinated black men and women for trying to vote, raped women in the countryside, just ran a campaign of terror to dissuade black people from trying to exercise their legitimate constitutional rights. So Sam Lohman was born in 1869. During this period of uh, incredible violence in South Carolina, his father was a former slave. His father uh, appears to have disappeared. I've never been able to find what happened to him. But Sam was in the household of his slave, uh, his slave-born grandfather. Um, all right, I'm getting off track. Uh, Sam came of age in the period of Jim Crow. By 1880, it was fairly clear that the former Confederate, uh, you know, power brokers of South Carolina were going to contain the black uh, political power 
that they had enjoyed during this brief period of Reconstruction, no matter how difficult it was to exercise. In 1890, uh, a very violent uh, man was elected to, to the governorship. His name was Benjamin Tillman. And he ran on a plank of, you know, lynching Negroes is a constitutional right. And so Sam, at that point, was uh, already married to Annie and expecting their first child, Bertha, around 1892-93. In spite of all this difficulty, Sam allied himself throughout his working life with prominent um, former planters, descendants of the planter class. And that was essential for black people throughout the South, was to have a white patron who could protect them if and when that black person fell into trouble. So Sam uh, was, as I said, in spite of the terrain he had to navigate, was a successful person. He owned a farm of over 100 acres, which he sold and then bought another piece of property, which was smaller. By the time this raid uh, occurred in 1925, he had sold that last piece of property and was essentially the manager of a farm that belonged to a white man named Will Hartley. And the bottom line in Sam Lohman and, and his family's demise is that his employer and the mayor of Mineta, Mineta is a postage stamp village, crossroads, uh, so very small, people know each other very well. Uh, the mayor of Mineta was not from the planter aristocracy. He had a niece who was married to a uh, rather, I guess you would say, a middling or poor white man who had borrowed money from Sam's employer in 1921 to open a dairy. He failed, and uh, Will Hartley, Sam's employer, foreclosed on the loan that they had, the, the documents that they had drawn up between themselves. And he took, as was his right, uh, the mules, the car, the, you know, the farm implements and so forth that were part of the, um, the uh, uh, collateral for this loan. Shortly thereafter, these mules show up in Sam's uh, loan for money to start a crop with a banker in Aiken. Um, and it's been told to me by survivors uh, even by the nephew of Will Hartley, who has since passed, that this was all about the mayor, Mr. Cato, being really offended that Will Hartley, who stood higher than he did by lineage, uh, being offended by Will Hartley foreclosing on his niece's husband, taking property, and then having Sam Lohman purchase that property. And having spent time in Mineta and being close to elderly people who have now who have since gone on, I understand where everybody lived. This man who lost his mules to Sam lived further down the road, had to pass Sam's house every day, uh, could see Sam's sons and nephew plowing with those mules. And I guarantee you that was not something that white Southerners, especially in this period, uh, were going to tolerate. They looked at Sam as an ugly black man. Even though black Palestinians were told 
All you have to do to prove yourself, to win back your, your constitutional rights, is to just show us that you can be a, 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 you know, a, a stalwart citizen. But in South Carolina, it was quite common for prosperous black farmers to be assassinated. And there were a number of black men who were assassinated around this time. So that's what happened to Sam Lohman. Right. And as you describe this, this degree of envy uh, mm-hmm. that has occurred, you also mentioned that you spoke to people. So tell us mm-hmm. about your methodology and how you went about researching this uh, mm-hmm. the Bowman's family. And I just want to mention to you, I'm getting, I'm being told there's a little feedback. I don't know if you're too close to your computer, oh. uh, but I'm no. getting just a little bit feedback. Okay, well, just take us through your your methodology so that people could really understand how much you invested in this research because it sounds quite thorough. Well, I started, uh, I am from South Carolina. My mother is from Orangeburg, and my roots on my mother's side go way back in South Carolina. So I've always been interested in, you know, the the race issue. My entire life, it's just perplexed me. I've never understood it. And I was raised, essentially, to be a polite white supremacist. Um, and for whatever reason... It never felt right, and I had experiences that disproved everything that I was being told by my own family and even in my own church. So I think that my interest in pursuing a graduate degree was driven by my desire to understand the culture out of which I've sprung, and my people have been in the South since the 1600s, so that's what I am. I was taught that I'm a Southerner before an American. So anyway, uh, the first thing I did was uh, I went to Furman University as an undergraduate and I got the uh, alumni directory and I found that there was an older gentleman, a graduate of Furman, who lived in Mineta. And I contacted him to tell him that I was interested in this incident. Could he help me? And he quickly responded, invited me to come out. And it turns out that he was the son of the local doctor who was the first person on the scene when uh, the sheriff and Annie Lohman were shot. And so he, Mr. Gerald, did not really remember that much, but he said, I've got a friend who knows everything. So he introduced me to Mr. Charles. And Mr. Charles and I spent a lot of time together writing around that section. I mean, he took me to graveyards that you could never find. Uh, He was a child, but it was his house that the, that Nolly Robinson, the deputy, uh, the day of the raid, came to because his mother was the only person who had a telephone. And so he came to the door and said, I need to use your phone to call Aiken. Sheriff Howard's been shot. So Mr. Charles tells me very vividly that he would call standing out on the porch of his house, from which you can still see uh, the, the, the school. The, I don't know what it was called at that point. It, it was the white school. And it still stands there. It's a brick building. And he remembers watching as they, they call it Clarence, 
the youngest of the Lomans. He was a teenager. And Damon, who had took off running toward his mother's people's home, uh, they brought those two fellas to the school, and people were calling for an immediate lynching. And there was a man there who, who was just a common white laborer who said, we're not gonna ha- we can't do that, that's ridiculous, you know, they need to be taken to jail. And in fact, people keep saying they were taken to the Aiken County Jail, they were taken to the state penitentiary in Columbia for safekeeping. Um, Bertha was taken to a local infirmary where the nephew of Will Hartley, who employed Sam, was hospitalized for an appendectomy. And he told me vividly about Bertha coming in there, almost dead. They expected her to die. And, uh, you know, just recalling the that's how he heard what had happened. And he told me, uh, he was up in his 90s then, you know, he said, I'm going to tell you, the Lomans had nothing to do with the sheriff's death. And he said, I'll go to my grave before I tell anybody what happened. But we went on to talk about his experience later in the 40s of trying to join the sheriff's uh, office in Aiken and that it was a, you know, it was was a de facto Klan um, uh, enterprise and that once he started his training or whatever, he realized that his job was to essentially oppress violently black people in Aiken County and he quit. So he died shortly after I interviewed him. But um, so the point is that I started with that. Of course, I did all the regular public record searches of the census, marriage records, but I looked at tax records, channel mortgages, marriage records, land records. Um, I had essential help from a man named Bill Duncan who lives in Aiken today, born, born and raised, white. But his grandfather had some hand in the lynching and was certainly there when it happened. But just like black folks won't talk about didn't never talked about it, but, but Bill knew enough to know that his grandfather was there. I also, you know, it's just like a daisy chain. You, you talk to one person and then they say, oh, you ought to talk to this person. But white, older white people who were alive and remember what happened are very reluctant. You have to sit there and talk to them for hours about everything else before they will come around and sort of obliquely tell you what what they saw or what they knew. So well, I that, have a question. All- yes, mm-hmm. I have a question coming no, out, of, out of the chat just for you because they want to know, mm-hmm. uh, was there any other information in the academic arena conducted on this incident are there other scholars on the uh-uh. Loman lynching? No. no. So you're the per- you're the person. I'm the only one who has done this kind of excavation of public record. The Loman lynchings have been mentioned uh, in 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 uh, surveys of South Carolina history or in other treatises on lynching generally. And what they use, what they repeat. Uh, is the account published by Walter White of the NAACP in Rope and Faggot. He also wrote an essay in in the crisis called The Shambles of South Carolina, and he also wrote a piece for the American Mercury called I Investigate Lynchings. In those three accounts, Walter White, and again, this is not a derogatory statement, but 
it's important to recognize that Walter White's first and foremost job was to convey to the rest of America, essentially the non-white South, that what had happened, what what was happening to black people in the South was an atrocity, and to remind them that this is what your people fought in the Union Army to end, but you're not paying attention. And this is what's happening. This is in the age before TV and even just on the beginning, at the beginning of radio. So everything that's been published before my essay in 2008, and I presented conference papers in 2003 and 2008, somehow PBS got a copy of that unpublished paper from 2003 and circulated it in its packet. And there's no way they could have gotten the documents that they threw on screen without that because you just can't find that information willy-nilly. It's not sitting there on a search. You have to be – anyway, the point is, to answer your question, yes, I'm the only person who has done this kind of work. Everything else is based on Walter White's account. Okay, and I have a caller, and the caller is calling from area code 504. So, caller, do you have a question or a comment you'd like to make right now? Yes, ma'am. I'm enjoying the show. It's very intriguing. While the show was taking place, I am looking through my copy of 100 Years of Lynchings, and I do see two articles, one from the New York mm -hmm. Sun, and another one from the New York mm -hmm. Amsterdam News uh, referring to the uh, Loman case. What I wanted to ask the guest mm -hmm. is, could you speak to reconstruction in South Carolina and the political gains that African Americans made and how that may have related to black land ownership, blacks acquiring land under the period? Because I understand South Carolina had, uh, out of mm -hmm. all the southern states, had most black elected officials during reconstruction. Thank you. Now listen. Right. Okay. And I, I will tell you right now that I'm rusty on my reconstruction historiography, but you're correct. South Carolina, just like uh, the Creole, uh, Creole class in Louisiana, did have a very strong free black population in Charleston who uh, were educated and uh, politically adept at dealing with white people. But there were also an amazing number of former slaves who immediately uh, grasped and, and were active in the South Carolina legislature to create a new constitution, I think it was 1868, that created public schools, that set up um, asylums for the poor and the insane, there was a land commission established to, and I'm not really clear on, I can't really go into that, but there was a South Carolina land commission that distributed land. And I, I ask you to look at, um, oh, let's see, what there is a book on the land commission itself, and I'm trying to identify it, but maybe you could email me after the show. Um, so, yes, yeah, South Carolina did make incredible strides forward, progressive strides forward, and those progressive measures were the fruit of former slaves and former free black uh, citizens of South Carolina. However, there was also uh, some corruption 
in, uh, I believe, you know, I'm not sure if it was the Land Commission or some other program, which was immediately seized upon and, and promoted to smear the entire Reconstruction regime. And that sort of propaganda was even, uh, was even played up north to, and, and, and began to sort of erode northern support for the project of Reconstruction. I mean, you know, it's a very complicated topic, but the North was never uh, an area of white people that just embraced black people as their, you know, unequivocal equals. So uh, it was very easy for white Northerners to, to be tired of hearing about, you know, the problems of the South. The U.S. government was trying to move west, was trying to subdue Indians, was building a transcontinental railroad. The Industrial Revolution and strikes were breaking out in the, uh, you know, the iron, the coal mines of uh, Pennsylvania with immigrant labor. So there were a lot of other things happening that required the government's attention. And sadly, uh, it it pulled out in 1876 as a result of a very corrupt bargain that was made. Um, and there's a great book by Sue Van Woodward on that topic called Reunion and Reaction, and I urge you to read it because Rutherford B. Hayes was not the legitimately elected president of the United States. It was a Democrat named Samuel Tilden of New York, but the election was handed to Hayes because he agreed that he would withdraw federal troops if seated from the South. So, you know... Reconstruction in South Carolina was highly contested in spite of the terror that was waged by these paramilitary uh, ex-Confederates and their progeny. Black people uh, persisted, and it's a real testament to their, to their determination to grab hold of their American uh, birthright uh, that they didn't back down in the face of assassination, rape you know, and all sorts of brutality. So okay, and we're being asked, uh, I'm being asked to have you repeat the name of the book. Oh, the book by C. Van Woodward is called Reunion and Reaction. The historian is the dean of Reunion and Reaction by C. Van Woodward. Now, it's, a, it's not a very thick book, but very politically uh, centered. You know, so it's not a social history. It's it's looking at the political uh, players and the deals that were made to return the South to the white uh, the white powers that were in control before the Civil War or their descendants. And it's important right. to note too that there were South, South Carolina and other Southern states, but I can't speak to those. But South Carolina did have a surprising number of Native whites who joined forces with the former freedmen and the free black people of Charleston to forge this biracial government. And those were people that were incredibly, you know, abhorred uh, by the majority of white people. And uh, they, too, were part of this coalition trying to move the state forward. And as we know, since 1876, we have, we have not seen really much progress. <laughs> Bye. Well, Elizabeth, I want to go back to some of your research. And at some point in this research, you had an opportunity to speak to uh, Mr. Sam Lohman. Am I correct? 
Low, no, I didn't speak with Sam because he died in 1931 or two. Okay. I never spoke to a Patricia. Let me think. Patricia is the first direct descendant okay. of Sam Lohman that I spoke to, and I, I found her through death certificates because, as the former caller uh, said, that in 100 Years of Lynching, which is sort of a, a compendium of contemporary newspaper articles. So those articles that he cited were from the period. Um, I knew from one of those articles that Sam had gone to Philadelphia. So I started to look for Lomans in the Philadelphia death indexes, indices and found Henry Loman. And Pat, am I right that you signed your dad's death certificate? That's correct. That was in 2004 that we met. Okay, but is that how I found you? Did you sign your dad's death certificate? That's correct. That's right. Okay, because I used that address. And I uh, think and my, I, father I had, to... my father had signed yeah. Dozier's death certificate. So you started with Dozier, and then his uh, name was on Dozier's death certificate. Then you found my father's death certificate, and my name was on it. Right, and then I wrote to you at the address given, and that's, that's how right. I found you. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you all have been communicating with each other for this is over ten years ago. Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, we've had some lapses, but yes, Pat and I have. We were introduced in two thousand four. I went to Philadelphia and I met Pat and her mother. Okay. And from that uh, point, were you two connected? What information were you able to learn, Patricia, about your Loman family from Elizabeth? Well, most of the things that I had learned before I even met Elizabeth was from uh, newspaper articles in the um, New York Amsterdam, the New York Times, and the New York World, which um, they carried an expose around the United States. Um, I had mm -hmm. gone to the uh, Schoenberg Center for Research in Black Culture, and that's where I had started my uh, genealogy search. And um, by 2004, when I met Elizabeth, that's when I became a little more enriched in what I was learning. Okay. And so, um, it, it, and there's a, a comment just uh, coming out of the chat about other books that others may want to look at. Uh, one is Reconstruction, uh, is Bonner's Reconstruction, uh, and then Tyler, Du Bois Eric Reconstruction mm -hmm. as, mm -hmm. as other books. But in, in the meantime, there, there is a dialogue taking place between you as the researcher and Patricia as a family member. Uh, just trying mm -hmm. to understand uh, what occurred in in her family and I can understand uh, how uh, important it was for you Patricia to go to the Schomburg and to oh, yeah. uh, to review some of the newspaper clippings on on your family however did you also look at uh, uh, inquisitions and other documents and even Walter White's uh, article about the lynchings? Uh, the, I have the uh, book that um, Walter Wright wrote called uh, Rope and Faggot. I purchased, mm -hmm. well, my, my sister purchased the book for me. 
Um, actually, when I went to the um, Schoen, uh, Schoenberg Center, I went with my cousin Ruby Lohman, whose father actually was in the house when this shooting took place. He was only 11 years old. His name was Charles Lohman. And so she no, and I Roy did our, um, No, that was his father. I'm sorry. His name was uh, Leroy Lohman, the mm-hmm. 11-year-old. And his father's name was Charles. Right. Yes. But he had died. He was he was dead Correct. at this time. Yes. That's right. Yeah, Sam had two brothers who were dead and Sam in addition to his own large family mm-hmm. and and his two grandchildren by uh by Bertha, Pat's grandmother, had um four nieces and nephews from one deceased brother and then Clarence who was from another brother. So, I mean, Sam really had a lot of people to take care of and again it's yes, a testament it to his his uh you know his just his confidence and his ability to navigate this difficult terrain they were a successful family as you can see from what happened to Dozier his son that you know Pat refers to as her grandfather even though it's really her great uncle you yes. know Dozier was born and bred down there and he went off to the army came back mm-hmm. to Mineta and then left. He was like, I'm not, because in South Carolina, as they did other places, they were lynching black men who had served in the armed forces. I mean, there were lynchings in South Carolina of men, who, black men who dared to wear their uniform in public. So, right. so you know, stay once, there. they left, Lester there. And, and Dozier, yeah. And Correct. especially Lester, who served in France, I think. That's right. He had no need for, for the South. South. Right. So anyway, I mean, Pat can tell you stories of Dozier and Lester. They never returned to South Carolina. No. Right. Matter of fact, never, yeah. Matter of fact, I had visited the South with my grandmother, I call her Nana, and um, I had gone down there twice, um, once when I was about five or six and then a little later as a teenager. Then I went back another time when my grandmother's sister turned 104 years old. However, my grandfather Dozier would never go back down there. He never went back. He never went back. Yeah. And he never went and, back to visit. No. Right, right. So, uh, Renard, as you have listened to uh, this discussion, uh, what what are you thinking about? Uh, your east side of the family, because your east side did not experience any lynchings, but th- as you found in your research that uh, Isaac East was in the household with Sam Lohman, if I'm getting this right. No, with but Dozier, what, right, with Dozier. Dozier excuse with me, Dozier with Dozier, with Dozier Lohman. But are you seeing that this is connected to your family or it's an incident that occurred around your family? I think we've lost him. Renard? I think we've lost Renard. Okay, well, while we're waiting for Renard to come back on, I'll just uh, continue. Uh, and there's a question about, or was it a Loman side issue? And I think that relates to what I just asked. Was right. the East family 
the question that Renard had inquired about, or was it a Loman question? But he's not here to uh, respond one way or the other. So I think that we've lost him with the connection. Yes, maybe he'll call yeah. back in. Yes, I'm hoping that he will call back in. So as far as your research, uh, Elizabeth, where can people find your essay? Well, you can Google it. It's on Google Books. Um, it's called An Ominous Defiance. And that's a quote from uh, the Columbia editorial that appeared shortly after the lynchings. So my name looks like Paul Robeson, R-O-B-E-S-O-N, and just Google Elizabeth, we pronounce it Robeson, an ominous defiance, uh, or Loman, Loman lynchings. And you can find it online. It was published in 2008. So you, now we do have a, a question coming, uh, coming up. And so I'm going to ask the caller, area code 571, do you have a question or a comment? Oh, a, a comment, comment. Go ahead. Um, I, 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 you don't want to Please uh, lower your computer uh, so that we don't get any uh, feedback. Thank you. Oh, is this okay? Yes, it is. Okay. I'm, I'm really happy to hear these uh, two ladies and to hear this uh, topic being discussed. Um, I think I've talked to one and I know the other one and uh, I'm from Aiken. I was born there in the 40s, in 41 as a matter of fact. And the story of the Loman lynchings was part of the discussions we heard on summer afternoons when people, um, I, I, it was not a pretty story, but it was passed on from uh, my mother who was 15 at the time, and uh, my other cousin, who was 12 at the time, and all living, uh, one in the Aiken area, one very close to, uh, in, in the neighborhood where the people were taken from the jail and um, mm -hmm. taken out and lynched. Uh, one of the things that bothers me about uh, Aiken is that these stories, uh, the, the younger people, I don't know who's going to pass them on. I'm worried about the history of what the people learn. Um, Aiken is so much more than horses and polo and all the niceties that uh, I think people want to think about when they think of Aiken. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's all fine, but... Um, I think our history, this history needs to be, mm -hmm. uh, our children need to know this. They need to know that what they see as Aiken today was very, very hard won or very hard yes. fought for the, whatever gains they have did not come easy. And uh, things are still, I don't think they're still perfect, but uh, people may think, uh, they're they're so great that they don't want to hear about this, and I think this is where uh, think programs like this, where this history can be continued, is is just so so important. Um, Elizabeth mm -hmm. interviewed my cousin, 
uh, she spent four hours with this cousin of mine. And one of the things that I remember most is that at one point she started talking about the, the lynching and it's almost like she regressed back into that time. And she Mm -hmm. said, I don't know if you remember this. She said, Oh my gosh, they're going to come for me. And you can see the fear all these years later Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. the atmosphere that that, that, that lynching uh, gripped the black community of Aiken with. I understand from my mother that a lot of people, a lot of black people left Aiken. Things, of course, were, were not very pleasant for them before that. But after that, people were just really afraid. And I heard mm-hmm. um, another thing that she told me, a lot of wealthy white families came south for the polo in, in Aiken, and after that happened, they stopped coming. Um, it just, it was such a blight on on the town. And I feel that the the white community who might still remember it just want it squashed mm-hmm. into the ground. Oh, and the others, yes, yes. All the newcomers, they don't know anything about it. I think they come and they're enjoying the best of of the of Aiken of Southern living and have no idea what the people the the uh, the minority community has gone through to provide this lovely Southern living for them. So this is so important, and I'm so happy that um, you're all telling this story. Well, thank you very thank you. much for, for coming on and, and sharing your perspective. And, you know, when you mentioned uh, your cousin and how she reacted as she was sharing this story, uh, the only thing I could think of was how sad for her to think that now that she was sharing this story that someone would come Mm -hmm. after her. Uh, Mm -hmm. Patricia, there's a question coming out of the... Yes, it does sound like the fear is still there. Well, how do young people of the family and are young people of the family affected and view the history uh, of of this this tragedy? Well, I have... um three sisters, and um, they view it as something that is, they're trying to pass on to their children so that they will know there is a history in the family that they should be aware of, that it did happen, and although we don't live in that violent kind of time now, in a way, because we do see violence in our law enforcement area now, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, some of the same things that happened 90 years ago are cropping up again, but this is why they want their children to know how it was, and then maybe they can compare what's going on right now. Right, and there's a comment that's coming out that the 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 uh, comment is that hopefully the young members of the Loman family know that this was a terrible incident, but that their history and legacy is greater than mm-hmm. what happened. That their history did not begin with the lynching and that they have an amazing legacy. Yes, yes. Well, I would say that in a perverse way, the lynching is a testament 
to the strength of the family. You see what I mean? It was not going to yes. be tolerated that That's a right. successful black man who came out of, you know, basically came out of slavery with nothing, mm-hmm. it wasn't going to be tolerated that he was going to stand higher or look more prosperous than his neighboring white people, than, than his white neighbors. So right. I, I always say that it is a perverse way of, of, uh, remarking upon their success if that makes sense it doesn't it does. doesn't assuage anything but it's it's you know and, and and to that point that pat lowther i think the caller was alluding to the people in aiken today who are determined to keep this story alive as the narrative was constructed at the time of of the raid on the loman house is that sam loman was a bootlegger and there, this case, you know, they were convicted and tried and found guilty of murder. Damon, his son, Bertha, his daughter, and Clarence's nephew. A black attorney from my hometown of Orangeburg, reading the newspapers in Columbia, just knew on its face this was a problematic uh, sentence. He appealed to the South Carolina Supreme Court and got a retrial. The, what's so important that people do not understand, and it was not brought out at all on the road show, is that here you have the Supreme Court of South Carolina, all white men, of course, all white supremacists, of course, and mm-hmm. they they affirmed in Jay Frederick, the black attorney's appeal, that there was no liquor found on that premise. They were convicted, the Lomans were convicted of conspiracy to kill the sheriff. So the Supreme Court says, if there was no liquor how could there have been a conspiracy? They were not expecting the sheriff. And in fact, the Supreme Court said that the sheriff had acted improperly because he did not properly identify himself. In those days, they did not wear uniforms and badges. Uh, The sheriff usually wore like black suit. And I don't know what his deputies were wearing, but it's not at all like it is today where law enforcement is obviously recognized. But, you know, the warrant was also improperly drawn. And there, I mean, that's a whole other tangent that we could explore. But the South Carolina Supreme Court said these people were not dealing in liquor. And yet, to this day, in Aiken County, in the sheriff's office, there is a plaque memorializing the death of Sheriff Howard, who, quote, was killed by a family of bootleggers while attempting to serve a warrant. And that is the story that's repeated almost every year on April 25th, the day that Sheriff Howard died. And, you know, it's like it just flies in the face of facts. That is disgusting. I mean, I don't know. Any, it is. But this is what we have to overturn, and that's the, the project I'm involved in right now. Because Sheriff Howard's name is memorialized in Aiken. It's memorialized on a, uh, a monument in South Carolina. It's, you know duty uh, officers slain in the line of duty. Well, he wasn't slain in the line of duty. He was improperly, he was acting improperly and killed, perhaps by his own deputy. And yet he's memorialized. And even in Washington, D.C., his name is chiseled on a wall of honor. So on the wall. Yeah. There's some other document um, that I, okay, there's another document that I read that, um, the Ku Klux Klan celebrated the anniversary of his death in the uh, graveyard serving lemonade right. and sandwiches. Right. Now that is, that was recorded. Yeah, yeah. Look, the Klan has always been a strong 
uh, force in Aiken County historically because it, it reaches back to Reconstruction. But mm-hmm. that's another topic. The Klan began anew in 1915 after Birth of a Nation came out. And that's another topic. But, yeah, the Klan was very strong, but it was primarily the poor white cotton mill workers in the cotton mill towns along the Savannah River on the western mm-hmm. border of Aiken County, which is very different from where Sam lived. On the north well, we have another question border. coming out. We have another question. And caller, you're on the line, 215. You're live. Hello? Yes. Hi. Hi. My name is Michelle Loman Keel. And I am <laughs> Pat's sister and Henry Loman's daughter. And I have been listening um, to your entire uh, blog. And I just want to say, Ms. Robinson, that you have, Robinson, I'm sorry, that you have done a remarkable um, work. And I appreciate everything. Well, you're so kind. Well, I can't wait for the whole thing to get published. It's an amazing story. I mean, it truly is. It just... It, it it really captures, I think, in microcosm, the quote, what they used to call in the South in during Jim Crow, the Negro problem. It wasn't a Negro mm-hmm. problem. It was a, a, a white America. It was the it was a racist problem generated by white people, you know. And so they're always poisoning it as, you know, it's the problem of black people. No, it was a problem of white people. And it's something that everybody in this country needs to really face. And I think through this particular story, it becomes very clear that what went on during Jim Crow was nothing but power through violence and force and intimidation. And that is the legacy of, of um, you know, black Southerners. That's right. why they and, left. And, you know? That's right. And they have survived through all of this and still live on. They did. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's an incredible legacy to the strength of African Americans, and it's something yes. that awes me. Because you yes, know, forget about Jim Crow. Think about slavery. That's right. That's you right. Know, it's like this long, these long mm. centuries of of incredible oppression at the force of you know any minute you could lose your life. That's right. Or be shot. That's or right. Or have your baby taken. Or you know, it, it's just mm-hmm. it's unbelievable. Yes. And and yet, and there's a comment coming out of the chat, and yet the families have survived through yes, all have. of this, and That's yet right. the families mm-hmm. have survived. Well, mm-hmm. one of the, 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 the main purpose of, of this show tonight was to have you all tell the South Carolina story, and also to share with us the truth. And that's yes. what it's all about. We wanted to hear the truth. And so to have someone portrayed as a bootlegger and to have this story mm-hmm. told over and over again is, mm-hmm. is a disservice to the family. And so to the family, uh, definitely I, I thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing with us your South Carolina story. And to mm-hmm. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing your research. You have thank done you for having us. Thank you both. You have done an amazing job. And 
thank you again. And I hope others will continue to listen to this story. Uh, I mean, you're a real scholar. You've done it. You've set the record straight. And this is what we needed to hear tonight. So thank you both thank very, you very much. Okay. okay. Thank you, Denise. Okay. Thank well, you, good Denise. evening. Right. Good evening. Good evening, everyone. And I want you to remember your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should mm -hmm. follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and at virginius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Radio. This radio show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC. Oh, everyone, I just look forward to you joining me next Thursday night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Mm -hmm.